Thank you for listening to the Vertical Podcast. I'm Jack Cesare. How much does a cloud weigh? You might not have ever thought about how much a cloud weighs. You might think 10 pounds. They're floating. They must be less dense than our atmosphere because they're floating. And they only begin to drop when they get way too heavy and rain comes down. Maybe it's about 10 pounds. You might be getting ahead of yourself and knowing that water is pretty dense, can weigh quite a bit. So you might guess 100 pounds. What if I told you a cloud, the light, fluffy, floating, flying things that when we were younger, we wanted to lay down on them? What if I told you it's a thousand pounds? This might come as a surprise. You see, it certainly surprised me. I thought a cloud weighed about 100 pounds. I tried to get ahead of myself. I thought about water, thought about how much water weighs. Then I thought about how when water gets dispersed into a gas form, how light that is. And I thought about 100. So I was quite shocked when I found out they weigh 1,000 pounds. Now, over the past minute, I've been rambling about the weight of clouds, probably surpassing your expectations. I might be boring you to death. You might be very confused why this episode of Veridical is starting this way. You might even be one further step ahead of me and know the real weight of clouds. See, the typical weight of a cloud is not a thousand pounds. It's actually one million tons. Now stop. For those of you who are just now learning this fact about the true weight of clouds, notice your emotional composure right now. You might be surprised. You might find it entertaining. You might be bored. But there's one thing you are not, and that's offended at me. No one's offended when they learn the real weight of clouds. Now, this might be because a cloud doesn't really have any bearing on your day. Sure, it provides your water, your 80% water, you drink water every day. You've learned to have a very close relationship with water. But the cloud isn't an essential foundational piece for your moral worldview. So, you don't really care. Now, imagine we came across a people group that worshipped clouds. Their religion was based around clouds. And their religion had a sacred book. And this book said that clouds weigh a thousand pounds. Now, if you're not unlucky enough to be born into such a bamboozled group of people, notice how their hesitancy, their resistance, maybe they even wage a war on you for saying that clouds weigh a million tons. Notice how that does nothing to the ontological facts regarding the weight of clouds. Notice how, no matter what their religious book says, no matter what their spiritual guides say, no matter what their inner heart and gut feelings and aspirations say, a cloud weighs a million tons. Who cares what they think? I might have mentioned it on this podcast before. I really enjoy watching individuals in STEM majors, science, technology, engineering, math, disagree and debate on various subjects. Because the moment a STEM major finds out he's wrong about something, he doesn't double down. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't get emotional. He swallows his pill and concedes his point. And immediately, in real time, in that moment of realization, he changes or she changes their mind. They begin to take on the corrected belief. They are more aligned with reality, despite 
five minutes before being wrong. And they never make an ad hominem question of who gave them the source. They don't care what the source thinks about politics or philosophy or honestly anything else other than what they're currently discussing. Now, we often say that this is because STEM subjects, whether it be mathematics, electrical engineering, all these things are empirically proven. But I promise you, you the listener, you think morality is objectively real. You think your worldview is objectively real. And if you didn't, you wouldn't think it. I assure you that every firm statement you make, you believe. This sounds so elementary, and it is. But how is it that we can see so many other people that claim to love reality and claim to believe everything that's true be so misguided, so idiotic, so disposing of the mental capacities that they are so lucky to have? These people are everywhere. And worst of all, you might be one. I might be one. What are the clouds in our life that we think weigh a thousand pounds? When the world and every good, reliable source of information is telling us they weigh a million, what are our 1,000 pound clouds? One area of academic philosophy that I've been pretty focused on over the past few months is epistemology. What is epistemology? Epistemology is the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. It's a theory of knowledge. I hold to the idea that everything we believe, everything we claim to know, is on a spectrum of reliability, with nothing ever reaching zero and nothing ever reaching 100% certitude. This, of course, displeases a lot of the uh, religious colleagues of mine who say without a doubt, with every ounce in their body, with every fiber of their existence, they know for certain that their religious views are correct. Meanwhile, every other religion of all the thousands of others are dead wrong, 100% wrong. Right? If you know one of these people, it's easy to imagine them as Christian. Ask them, if we identified the body and even the skin and the bones in a grave labeled Jesus of Nazareth and they dated back to 30 AD, would that change their mind? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't investigate truth claims. I'm not saying we shouldn't verify for ourselves. And the more important the matter, the more foundational to our worldview it is, the more we should investigate it, the more heightened our defense should be when we go into verifying that truth claim, no doubt. But where do we draw the line? When do we draw the line on having enough evidence to change our mind? For every belief you hold, I challenge you over this year, for every belief, even the belief that you're conscious right now, ask yourself, what would it take to change my mind? And if the answer is nothing, you're not dedicated to reality. You're not dedicated to truth. And for my Christian colleagues out there who claim to have the truth, who claim to have the way, who claim to have the knowledge for what leads to a great 
prosperous, moral, and divinely oriented life, you need to stop saying that. You're diluted. You're confused. And you've been manipulated and brainwashed by the same epistemological framework that you cry yourself to sleep over non-believers having. Do I sound frustrated? Do I sound bitter? Last year, on the New Year's episode of Veridical, I had us look at the world. I had us look at Russia, Ukraine. I had us look at our professional institutions. I had us look at how we view the outside world. This year, I want us to look within. I want us to question our questioning. I want us to develop a good epistemological framework, a good theory of knowledge, so we can navigate these outside events correctly, truthfully, honestly, and genuinely within ourselves. That way we're not bogged down with emotions when we get corrected. That way we're not defensive and lying to ourselves whenever we find out we're wrong. We can be like STEM majors arguing. We can be like a mathematician that finds out he's wrong and immediately corrects himself. That reality is the reality we live in. We live in the world, in the universe, where morality is objectively true, where ideas are objectively right and wrong, helpful and unhelpful. We live in that world already, so there's no reason for us to not act like it. One of my favorite authors is Yuval Noah Harari. I covered his book, I believe, in episode 3, Homo Deus. Yuval speaks about how everything we believe is a story. Everything is narratives. And I like the way he puts it because he says every ideology is a narrative. Atheism is a narrative. Christianity is a narrative. Some narratives are true. Other narratives aren't. But we all believe certain narratives. And I believe it was in Lex Friedman's interview with him. He said, some of the best storytellers aren't the religious people. They're not philosophers. It's not J.R.R. Tolkien. It's not C.S. Lewis. J.K. Rowling can't even come close to how great the real best storytellers are. The best storytellers are found in the U.S. Treasury. Those telling you how much your dollar is worth. Think of it. Money is a narrative that we all choose to believe. The number that you see digitally represented in your bank account. You know the bank doesn't actually have that much money in cash. And even when you do get that cash, it's a piece of paper. If you had a banana and I had that same piece of paper, but the art and the writing found on our U.S. currency wasn't on it, would you give me that banana? What would you give me for that piece of paper? Probably nothing. But if you take this piece of paper and you draw a precedent on it, right, in God we trust, put a number and a special stamp on it, well, now, if you collect enough of them, you can buy a yacht. If you get even more, you can enlist some of your friends, go to a country, find the government that you don't really like, stage a coup, and take over that whole country. 
You can then change the laws. You can then change the norms, the culture, and you can kill or save anyone you want if you have enough money. If you subscribe to the narrative strongly enough. As you go into this new year, ask yourself, what narratives do you believe? What narratives make sense? What narratives are conducive to society? I'm not saying money isn't useful, and I'm not saying we shouldn't believe the narrative of money. Borders are human constructs, yet I believe borders are a useful tool to keeping society civil. Now, I'm still a Christian. At least I still label myself as one. Many people say I'm not. I'm actually in between interviews with Shirley Phelps Roper, who is very firm that I am not a Christian, and I am very much going to burn in hell. I would say I'm still a Christian. However, I've been really interested for years now in the canonization process of the scriptures we read. How did we come to have our current Bible? Well, we tell ourselves that God divinely authored this wonderful story, this narrative. And I would even subscribe to that idea. But really, in the year 300 and 400, and as late as 5 and 600, groups of people were getting together and deciding what books are coming into our Bible and what books aren't. Some books took a while. Some books were quick. Some Christian sects still disagree. The Catholics have a different Bible than the Protestants. Who's right? Who's wrong? Well, the Catholics think they're right, and the Protestants think they're right. Which one is it? Right? We tell ourselves this is a divinely authored book. But how do we come to know that? What is our mode of epistemology to believe this? If you're Shirley Phelps Roper, you'll say 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. Let me say, if you use 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, to justify your belief in scripture. Okay, I'll, I'll word it differently. If you use scripture to justify scripture, you're going in a circle. That's a circular argument. At Dallas Theological Seminary, Glenn Kreider, my old professor, will get up in front of the class and say, yeah, that's a circular logic, and it's okay to use circular logic, right? Because the Holy Spirit which we also find out about in scripture, tells us that we can rely on this. Okay? These are the narratives we need to learn to drop. We might look at the Westboro Baptist members as insane. We might look at flat earthers as crazy. Okay, I know people that truly believe that if you're sick, instead of taking medicine... Instead of taking professionally designed and synthesized remedies, you should take a potato, right, or an onion. Fuck it if it's genetically modified. Put it in your sock and go to sleep. And then, when you wake up, you'll see the potato or the onion is black. All the sickness 
must have drained out of you, right? Screw the idea that if you expose a potato or an onion to oxygen and sweat and heat, it gets black. Screw the basic science. It works. Trust me, you don't need to fall into the lie of big pharma. Now, we might think these people are crazy, right? I certainly do. How different am I though? What are my narratives that I need to change? What am I diluting myself with? What am I confusing myself with? What are you most likely wrong about? I'm not a fan of New Year's. I think anything worth changing next year is worth changing right now. You don't need the date on the calendar to change to go exercise or to eat better or to stop drinking. You don't need the date to change for that to happen. However, I do see New Year's as a useful reset point. It's a good checkpoint, a reminder, as my fiancé pointed out to me, that our days go on, right? And there's never a time that's too late to change and to improve upon ourselves and to make ourselves better. Now, I've always said this for myself, and I would encourage you, the listener, to take a similar posture. But more than my religion, the only thing I'm dedicated to more is reality. I believe my Christianity stems from my loyalty to reality and truth. My religion isn't supported just by itself, but by its ontological claims and existence in reality. And when something in my religion doesn't align with reality, I don't immediately drop my belief in it, but I lower it on its spectrum of reliability. All claims are on the spectrum of reliability. Nothing's at zero, nothing's at a hundred. We can't absolutely, with a hundred percent certainty, rule out anything nor can we, with 100% certainty, affirm anything. Some things are higher on this spectrum of reliability than others. If you were here with me right now, and I said, your car is getting towed. Well, I know the Dallas area. You maybe don't. And cars getting towed is quite common. You might then stand up and run out the door to go make sure you would perform an epistemological exercise to ensure your belief in my claim. Meanwhile, if I said, right behind you, there's an elephant, a fully grown mammal, the elephant, from the nature documentaries, it's standing right behind you, you wouldn't turn around. It is possible. It, it, It could occur in the world. Physics doesn't deny the possibility that that could be, right? But you know, with up to 99% on the spectrum, that there is not an elephant behind you, right? My statement, my claim, falls very low on the reliability spectrum. You don't even really need to address it, right? Think of your claims, of the narratives you believe, and place them on the spectrum of reliability and ask yourself what lends them 
their position on the spectrum. Lately, I've been encountering many wacky ideas among my friends, my colleagues, and then also people I'm not very familiar with. No doubt the conspiracies on the right are flaming up and they're at an all-time high, but the left, at least the contemporary left, is equally, and honestly, if not more guilty of being stupid. The left claims to be in the arena of intellectualism. They claim to be the ones really in the know-how. So the left should be held to a higher standard when it comes to making claims about reality. Now, despite my politically charged comments, I want us to drop all labels and all titles and hold ourselves to the same standard of proof and the same standard of reliability that we expect out of others. Think of those times when you were in a very heated argument, a very strong and passionate debate. Maybe it was about politics, maybe it was about drug use, or crime rates, or anything. Remember when the opponent or the person you're disagreeing with said something that you knew wasn't true. Remember how excited you were to pull out your phone and Google something that proved your point. How lackadaisical, how lazy, how unthoughtful was your burden of proof for the things that verified your position of the argument? Did you care about the source? Did you? Yet, when your opponent or the person you're arguing with pulled out their phone and quoted something that proved you wrong, how defensive, how strict, how aggressive were you in making them verify that claim? You might have said something like, oh, is it peer-reviewed? Let me see your source. Oh, it says .com at the end. You can't rely on those. You're going for elementary sources. Now, as an academic myself, I see nothing wrong with being strict and policing the reliability of the sources we use. But how much do we police the sources that prove our points? How strict are we on our own foundations of our worldview? I have a practice uh, that I do on my phone here where I document every time my mind changes on something significant. It might be political, might be religious, might be philosophical. Uh, They kind of vary. I'm going to read some of them out of here. I believe this is a, a helpful tool for holding yourself accountable on your statements of truth. Now, these are kind of just weakly jotted down. Um, They're just reference points for me. I have written here, February of 2022, I changed to a slightly more restricted view on free will. I now say we have a limited amount of free will, but it's within the boundaries of our nature. For example, a cheetah has free will, but it cannot choose to be a vegetarian. Uh, On October of 2021, I changed my mind on what to do when I'm older. I want to teach. I want to be in academia. Summer of 2021, I changed my mind from thinking that secular intellectual material should not be consumed. I wrote that secular intellect is commonly viewed as incorrect or useless by theologians, but proof and obvious evidence of things would not exist outside of the boundaries of God. Also in the summer of 2021, I wrote, I changed my view on guns. 
I used to want to ban all guns across the board, but I'm now more open to the idea of owning firearms, but with very fun reducing restrictions. Oh, this one's pretty big. This was in February of 2020. I began to believe in evolution and an old earth. I used to be a young earth creationist. Now I believe that evolution is a God-guided process. Well, I've certainly placed my stake in that one. Many people know me for being quite militant on uh, evolution and the age of the earth and whatnot. Uh, on April 16th of 2022, changed my mind that God extended the lifespans of the early Genesis accounts. William Lane Cray convinced me that there is an ancient numerical system that explains these absurd ages. On 6-18-22, a good friend of mine changed my mind to be poised against artificial meat. I no longer believe an exact replica of meat can be achieved unless constructed atom by atom. Notably, later on down here, February 10th of 2023, it's about a year after I changed my mind there, I changed my mind back. I wrote, I now believe that stem cell research with meat is not only safe and reliable, but it's necessary for solving the problem of feeding billions of people. I also wrote here, January 9th of 2023, Michael Reeves' Delighting in the Trinity book has made me more confident in the Trinity and I'm no longer agnostic to that claim. Since then, <laughs> I've changed my mind back. Now I'm skeptical again of the Trinity. And then on February 21st of 2023, Sam Harris changed my mind to be more open to the lab leak theory of COVID-19. I have written here that I used to believe that that theory was created out of racism and to demonize a political opponent. Now I see that saying that it came from a Chinese wet market isn't very satisfying or pleasant at all either. So these are just a few I have more written here. I like to document in the moment when my mind gets changed because these are critical moments to our worldview. These are how we exercise a healthy epistemology. I have often said that Christianity is my primary religion, but if I had a secondary religion, it'd be that of conversation. Uh, now, I still believe in my religion of conversation, that all people can be persuaded of reality, that all people can be convinced of truth. Sadly, I am slowly feeling an atheism or an agnosticism to this religion of mine. Um, I'm still clinging to it but I'm not clinging to it as strongly as I used to. I want to see hope. I want to see more minds changed in the moment. Right? Even when I look at myself and my rate of mind changes on that document on my phone, it's been a while, right? and I miss that. It's a painful moment, but it's a growing moment. It's a moment of renewal. You become more aligned with reality when you change your mind. We don't want to be wrong for a moment longer than we need to be. If you had the opportunity to remove all of your incorrect assumptions right now, you would take it. We're going into yet another new year, and these years feel to be going by faster and faster. And no doubt, 2024 
will be full of the same sort of bizarre national headlines of war, conflict, technological breakthroughs, tragedy, natural disasters, new claims upon reality. This year, I want to challenge you to doubt yourself more. You, like me, are probably more wrong than you think, than I think. Right? Not that reality isn't able to be known. We have reality at our fingertips. We live in it. Right? But we go about our day with more presuppositions than we give ourselves credit for. And we need to acknowledge these presuppositions. You might be right. right? You might be right that Islam or Hinduism is the real reality of the world. I might be wrong. Christianity might be nothing but a facade about a man who died in 30 AD and rotted in a mass grave. And then shortly after, a bunch of Greeks did nothing but psychedelics and constructed this wacky religion that we've all fallen for. That might be true. Right? It might be true that the girl with blue hair is right and we're all worshiping the same God. Right? We're, we're, we're all worshiping the same religion, and it's really just divisiveness that's keeping us apart, right? Maybe. The environment that we walk around in today is hostile to those seeking truth. We have this dumbed-down, idiotic assumption that everyone in our camp is correct, and everyone in the opposite camps are dead wrong. On the political spectrum, I recommend you check out uh, my friend Michael's podcast, uh, Productive Politics. You can find them on all platforms, and they take a very practical and useful approach to addressing the political partisan biases and divisiveness we have in our society today. Both Michael and his co-hosts have PhDs in cognitive neuroscience, and I'm excited to announce, uh, I believe we're coordinating a joint podcast in the future, um, something that I will be very happy to share with y'all. Michael is a breath of fresh air when it comes to discussing politics, and he really provides a useful and tangible understanding of the mental faculties at work in establishing our political worldview. Again, I highly recommend you check them out. Our political landscape certainly is one of the more exhausting environments in our society today. I don't really know what it's going to take to change. Michael and his co-host say that it takes a radical renewal of our minds. I certainly don't not believe that. I also don't think that's all talk. I think there is something tangible there, especially with the expertise that they bring. However, I don't really feel guilty and I don't really shun others for viewing our situation, at least in the political spectrum, as hopeless. In a broad sense, the age we're entering cares about your mind less and less, but your mind and your perception of reality and your grasping of it has never been more essential. As you go into 2024, challenge yourself. Seek reality. Confront reality. Acknowledge the fact that your clouds don't weigh a thousand pounds.
Veridical has been up and running for a little bit over a year. This has been a very exciting project of mine, and I'm excited that it keeps growing and we are all able to change our epistemological frameworks together on this podcast. This is an immense blessing, and I do not take it for granted. And every one of you that listens holds a very special place in my heart. There are more exciting interviews coming. The interview with Shirley Phelps Roper will be out soon. I'm about to record a part two with her. Uh, We got the first hour down so far. Unfortunately, it is more boring than I thought. It's a lot of her yelling scripture at me. But I still believe it is useful to talk to people like that, and I'll continue to do so. I'm grateful for the opportunity to interview her. There's been some new developments on my Substack. I recently finished a very long-winded essay of my grievances and thoughts and opinions regarding the Russian-Ukraine war. And so far, my writing on there has been enjoyable. I plan to write a lot more. I certainly want to cover uh, the topic of epistemology in a more professional sense and get my writing um, constituted and written down. Uh, So that will be on the way. My Charles Taylor Secular Age Project will begin soon. I'm excited to bring that to you guys. And like I said, I am very grateful to do this. And I'm grateful for all of you listening. Thanks to the Small World team, Nathan, Austin, and Chris. You guys are brilliant. Thank you for letting Veridical exist and flourish. To close, I want to read a quote from Baruch Spinoza, the Enlightenment thinker. The highest activity a human being can attain is learning for understanding. Because to understand is to be free. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thank you.